That Hello, everybody, life. and welcome. Uh, sorry, I thought that's what I thought. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of React Thirty, the podcast all about React, where we promise not to waste more than thirty minutes of your time. Um, and this week's episode, I I am your uh, co-host, Michael Jackson. Uh, joining us today is uh, our producer and co-host Kent C. Dodds. Hello. And uh, Ryan P. Florence. <laughs> hey. <clears throat> who, who has apparently checked out of civilized uh, society and is now living somewhere in the forest with a... Oh, jeez. Is that Bear Lake? Yep. I'm a bear lake. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. Totally jealous. Yeah, and I, oh, just, I, still, I still know how to wakeboard. Water oh, man. Yesterday, I was throwing back flips, front flips, gave myself a headache trying to 360. Sick, dude. <laughs> yeah. Sick. That sounds like a ton of fun. Yeah, you're um, So our special one. guest this week... Oh, Yeah. <laughs> So our special guest this week is Jason Miller. Say hi, Jason. Hi. I'm not going to do Dustin's thing. <laughs> hi. <laughs> uh, you might know Jason as uh, Develop It uh, on Twitter and GitHub. Jason is the author of a really cool uh, kind of React alternative called uh, Preact with a P. Um, so anyway, we're gonna we're gonna get a chance to talk about that uh, much later, or not much later. Hopefully, not much later. Uh, I I met Jason uh, for the first time. I think it was in my npm cdn uh, project, where I was uh, I was doing some stuff, and Jason showed up, and he was like, "Hey, I'm using this as well. This is kind of cool." So we we kind of you know met over there, and then we're doing a few other things. Um, he likes to troll me. He likes to make PRs that that you know troll me and and stuff. So I appreciate that, Jason. Um, so so um, so Jason, uh, just as kind of a uh, an intro. Oh, by the way, um, I uh, I'm 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 doing this week's timer using uh, JavaScript's set timeout function. Um, and uh, Chrome has told me that it refused to evaluate a string as JavaScript because unsafe eval is not allowed, source of script, and the following content security policy directive. You know, stuff just used to be so easy on the <laughs> web, and now I get messages like this, and I don't know what they, I don't know what they mean anymore. So I ignore that. You're, you're, you're our timer again this week, Kent. All right, I'll, I'll figure it out. <laughs> All right, so so Jason, um, why don't you give us uh, kind of the the bird's eye view of Preact and uh, kind of how it came to be? I, I guess you started it out as kind of like a, a kind of like a VDOM library. So why don't you give us the the kind of elevator sales pitch uh, about Preact and what it is? Cool. So depending on the length of the elevator, uh, I change the pitch. <laughs> Um, the, the short one is uh, if you're a developer in a situation where you uh, might find it difficult or impossible to use React, um, you know, there's a bunch of different cases like uh, embedded widgets and these types of things. Um, if it's 
if it's not quite a perfect fit for you, it might be um, that you can use Preact and still have most of the same functionality and that same sort of um, that same interface as React. Uh, so it's it's kind of an attempt to take what makes React easy to use and learn and very useful uh, and boil that down into as tiny of a JavaScript library as possible. Um, so that's, that's kind of the pitch. It's, um, it's a lot more specific than React. Um, there's very little native programming or anything that goes on. Um, and it is definitely specific to web uh, and to the HTML DOM. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, its goal is to be small but still encompass as much of the React public API as possible. Yeah, I was going to say, it's it's pretty small. The um, In fact, I was able to read through all, almost all of the source code in, uh, you know, just a few hours this morning, um, just kind of browsing through and, and saw a lot of the kind of elements that I was familiar with uh, from browsing through React's own source code, things like the render queue and stuff like that. Um, and just saw those in Preact source code, so that was that was actually pretty cool. Um, if you've ever kind of uh, been intimidated by the uh, React source code, it might be kind of a you know maybe a little more approachable, uh, just because it is less code. Um, so so cool. So it's tiny, um, and then you've got also this kind of uh, extreme focus on uh, performance. Um, so so that's is that, is that a is is it is it wrong to say that? No, it's, it's definitely correct. Um, where, the way this started out, uh, it was a code pen. Uh, I was doing animations of a bunch of different um, DOM elements, just as like divs mocking as circles. Uh, and I wanted to see if, you know, for this given demo, I could avoid using Canvas. Um, so I was, I was creating and deleting DOM elements in a uh, request animation frame loop uh, and styling them, you know, in a rainbow or whatever. Just a, a silly kind of a, a code pen thing, but... Uh, I just started off with a really specific diff, uh, not actually diffing the DOM, but diffing, you know, these objects. They were called cursor for some reason. Um, and that kind of evolved into a really basic attribute diff, uh, and then obviously the creation deletion of things as part of the animation necessitated, uh, you know, a, a creation and deletion diff. And I started to add in all of these various pieces, um, and after I added in the reordering diffing, uh, or at least a, a very naive version of reordering diffing. Um, it started to not approach necessarily where, where React's diff was, uh, because this is, diffing the DOM is kind of a weird case. It's not a very deterministic thing to diff. You can have you know, nodes with properties that are objects, and you're not really going to serialize those to try and create nice yes. keys to diff. That's where the key attribute comes in. Yes. Um, but So I, I ended up with this algorithm that was at least, you know, for a lot of use cases, probably sufficient uh, to do basic diffing. You can measure that by, you know, rendering a couple of things, uh, you know, and then adding a watch to create element and set attribute and all these various DOM methods, and then seeing if you go and render previous versions, how many DOM operations are being performed. Um, and once I got that, you know, those numbers down low enough that it seemed like there was no extra work being done, I realized that I could probably just publish this diff algorithm. Um, that you know, standalone would have been fairly similar to um, Matt, I want to say Ike, I don't know his last name, uh, his virtual DOM library. Um, his is maybe a little bit more fully featured there because it's hyper-focused on just that diff. So you weren't, um, you weren't, like, set out to make a React alternative at this point. You were just doing something fun and then realized, 
oh, a React-like thing just showed up in my code pen. Right. Maybe I should explore this. Yeah, and and so that's that's where I say it sort of came from performance. I was doing animation first. I, I wasn't really thinking necessarily about rendering user interfaces with this. Um, but as I as it started to grow, it never really grew beyond the confines of what I was able to manage in a code pen. I mean, 800 lines of code pen is maybe a little bit long, but it's really not that bad. Uh, even at that point, I think it was about 500 lines. <laughs> yeah, I know. You can tell I used to program everything in one file. Um, but I so JS bin once. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like that style. It's it's rapid prototyping, right? And I, I get yeah. some points at the end that I wanted to make about that, exactly. you know, relating really back to the React community. Um, but so it never really grew beyond that size, and I started thinking maybe there's a bunch of cases, like I know I'd certainly run into stuff where let's say I'm developing a library for doing authentication, and it needs to show a pop-up with some available off providers or whatever and, and you know, let you pick a few things. But really, like, it's, it's a small piece of user interface. Um, it might benefit from a diff, but it, it certainly doesn't warrant bringing in all of React. Like, this is a, a one modal kind of a thing. Um, and if it was possible to try and pull some of those core values from React out into something that's really tiny, um, you might be able to use Preact where you would normally have to go vanilla JavaScript or, you know, direct DOM manipulation. Uh, and, and to me, that's a big gain because uh, it's a lot more maintainable to, to maintain something that is built on top of a known abstraction, even if the implementation Absolutely. is different. Um, Absolutely. So I can, I can jump between a React code base and you know, this, this tiny module that just happens to have some user interface, but the concepts are still the same. The code is uh, either fully portable or ridiculously easy to port by swapping out some imports. So um, on, on that, um, like the implementation being totally different, so um, other than like what you mentioned, how this is like specific to the web, like why wouldn't I just always use Preact? Can you t uh, talk a little bit more about that? Because like it sounds like it's smaller, it's faster. What are some of the other reasons why I might um, want to use React instead? Yeah, I mean, there's, I'm obviously, it's easy for me to list reasons why you might. Uh, I certainly use it in my day job and, and all my side stuff. Um, but there, you know, there's reasons why it's maybe easier for me as the author to, to just say, oh, yeah, I'll just use the thing that I wrote because I fully understand it. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that likes to, to see and feel how things work. Uh, and so that was kind of what took Preact from just a virtual DOM library to trying to emulate a lot of what React does is studying the React code base. And there's a series of articles called Understanding React and Re-Implementing It from Scratch that somebody wrote. Uh, I wish I had the link. I don't. Um, they are fantastic articles, and they kind of helped me transition this into something that I, I would consider using in production. Um, but really, like, there's, there's a couple other things. So um, in going between React and, and, uh, and a, a raw virtual DOM library, I think the thing that I missed the most uh, because I, I tend to use component state um, at least at first and then consider things like Redux. Um, the thing that I missed the most was linked state. Uh, I find it helps reduce the number of, uh, you know, manually written event handlers, basically just trying to get values back out of the DOM into your component state. Um, and so one of, the, one of the big differences that Preact has from React in terms of the API is uh, it ships with a linked state, not mix-in, but, uh, you know, a linked state method. Uh, hanging off of component that you can call. And so it, ba it basically just creates an event handler for you that persists a value from the DOM back into state. Um, and I found that useful. Um, there was a couple other really nitpicky things. So there's, oh, there's, a, there's a really long saga of why React uses class name um, and not class. Um, and I read that saga and I understand it. Um, 
but that was long after <laughs> I chose to use class. Um, and it's really interesting to watch that play out because now React is kind of moving very slowly in baby steps back towards attributes from properties, not necessarily for the actual diffing algorithm, but for their nomenclature and for the way they, you know, the way people understand how JSX attributes work. Um, so, so yeah, one of the differences would be that it prefers class over class name, though it will accept both. Um, and there's a couple yeah, yeah, niceties. Oh, sorry. I, I, well, I was just going to say, I think, I think, I mean, we've touched on a few points already that I think are actually really, really interesting. How Preact is kind of um, it's, it's, it's almost kind of, it's almost kind of way in the way areas, I think, right? Like this. Hey, hold, hold it, hold it, hold it. Is that uh, is Michael super scratchy for anybody else? Yeah, it's robot Michael time right now. Yeah, it could be feedback from everybody else. So uh, make sure to mute yourself when you're not talking. Yeah. Okay, I'm turning off my video. Does that help? Uh, go ahead and turn your video back on. I bet I bet it was one of us. Oh, okay. Is that is that okay? You sound great. Okay, so I was just gonna say, um, great. We we've touched on a few points here where it seems like Preact. You, you know, obviously you have a you have a smaller user base with Preact, right? You don't have all these existing kind of quote unquote legacy applications. You know, massive users to support, so you can make changes. You can move a little bit more quickly. Uh, and break things, as Facebook is 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 fond of saying. Um, so you know you've got a few things that you, that we've talked about. You're you're diffing against actual DOM, which I know is something that React actually wants to do eventually. Um, you're making this move to you know HTML using HTML attribute names instead of um, instead of uh, DOM property names, which you know given the nature of JSX. Lots of people, when they get some JSX into their code base, they're kind of confused, like, why do I have to use the class name thing? And in fact, Ryan and I, in our training workshops, we have to teach people, hey, look, this is you know the DOM property name, and it's not a big thing. So um, it seems like, in a few ways, you're kind of able to say, um, you know, let's let's take like this React model, which is which is great. Um, you know, I prefer an abstraction. I want the virtual DOM, but you know. I've got a few nits with it. Like I've got a few improvements that I could make with it. Um, I saw I saw a conversation between you, uh, just a brief conversation, you, Jason, and Sebastian Mark Beige, who's the uh, we're, we're going to get him on the show in just a few weeks here. But um, uh, on Twitter, where you were talking about you know the scheduling of um, I think it was specifically the the scheduling of the um, of the startup, uh, you know the the way that the way that React boots on the page, and you're talking about you know, using different methods for scheduling. You're using, a, uh, I think, a message channel where they're using some sort of uh, set timeout or something right now. So, so it it seems like, in a lot of ways, like you know, you can sort of experiment with things and and you know maybe move a little bit, just be a little bit more agile. You know, move a little bit faster, break stuff um, because you don't have this really large user base. Um, and then it seems like you know if if the communication channel is open, like some of these ideas can actually be ported back into React Core. Is that inaccurate? Yeah, absolutely. And like I, I've had you know a couple. I'm, I'm obviously like super arms reach from from anything happening in React Core. Um, but I've definitely had some conversations with them. You know, even things like uh, when they were finally able to drop the wrapping spans around text nodes. Um, that was that was something that you know. When I was just looking at that original optimization of a virtual DOM diffing algorithm, um, 
not only did I did I eschew wrapping text nodes in spans, but I actually also collapsed text nodes manually before the DOM has to do that using uh, you know, normalize. Um, and and I, I'm hoping that um, what I can show in Preact, where I do have that, that smaller user base, uh, I have more focus just on web. Like React, when they make a change in React Core, has to worry about you know the 300 different renderers that might exist and be relying on some crazy you know constraint about that. Yeah, that's um, a lot. That's a lot of baggage, right? Yeah, exactly. And and they have so a lot of users, a lot of different uh, use cases, right? Their use cases vary more because their targets vary more. Uh, and, and Preact doesn't necessarily have to deal with that. So when I, when I talk about it not having the, you know, to deal with legacy APIs and that kind of stuff, it's not just APIs. It's even just, uh, you know, legacy use cases. Stuff from React point thirteen um, just doesn't exist here. So. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's awesome. I, I I don't mean to say that I think React is moving slowly or anything. I think React actually is moving very very quickly, especially for a project of its size and and popularity and and deployment. Um, but but I, I do think that you know we do need some sort of breathing room. We do need some space to sort of experiment, you know, and get out there and and try new things. Um, the React uh, authors uh, actually had a, a React Future repo uh, that they were doing a lot of work on. Um, you know, kind of in this same vein, like you know, exploring things you know that they could possibly do in the future. So I think it's really cool that there's sort of you know instead of um, you know, just sort of theorizing about it. There's an actual, you know, implementation here that we can sort of, you know, play around with and, and do things with. So, so kudos for that. That's really cool. Yeah, and I wonder whether, like, React Future is awesome. Uh, it's definitely good to get those ideas down on paper. Um, you know, my thinking around that is if if I can make or, or improve the approachability of Preact as a code base, uh, it's possible that that might be an easier place to do these sort of wild experimentations, like... Uh, you know, one example would be I switched the you know the queuing to be powered by promises because it's the tightest async you can do in a browser. Um, and in in noticing that, I turned on full async rendering. So when you set a component's props, when you render a child, it's actually not synchronous anymore. Um, and the effect was it clips the stack trace for that deep recursion algorithm that that is the the reconciliation. Um, and for whatever reason, I guess just because function calls are expensive and there's, there's lots of context being created, doing that in a tight promise loop uh, is actually faster and leads to better frame rate than just doing it using straight recursion. Um, so, you know, whatever the semantics are of, you know, promise.resolve.then, uh, there is some serious promise there, at, at the very least in Chrome. Uh, that's, that's why that's not turned on by default in Preact yet is, you know, if, if you don't is have promises, it's cool. <laughs> Uh, you said there's some serious promise there. That was Maybe. slick. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually have a question about that. How do you uh, how do you benchmark Preact? Yeah, so that's actually one kind of evolving thing. I have uh, you know a couple obviously apps that I run locally, and I just npm link Preact into them and and make sure stuff's not broken. That's more you know aside from from unit tests. That's kind of my uh, my larger integration test suite is, hey, did this break Preact MDL, which is sort of this ungodly mess of a third-party library integration? Um, and, and usually if something's broken in Preact, it will break the heck out of Preact MDL. Uh, material design light, by the way. Um, but the, the main way that I actually look at performance, I have some, um, some baseline tests that run as part of my unit tests, uh, and there's actually like high watermark values that if it goes over that, the tests will fail. Uh, and those obviously get adjusted depending on whether code coverage is enabled um, and, that, and that kind of stuff. But basically, I measure, you know, 
some baseline information about how fast the JavaScript environment is able to execute, kind of trying to come up with a tick value. Um, and then I run things like uh, a diff of two identical vtrees uh, to see you know, what the overhead of the algorithm was when there's actually no DOM operations being performed. And that should be obviously very fast, you know, the many, many, many hundreds of thousands per, per second kind of thing. Um, and then I, I do things like um, render problematic components, like stateful elements, like uh, you know, inputs and that kind of stuff, stuff where you might write JSX attributes uh, and they get persisted out to the DOM as some other type, or, or you know, there's some sort of a, an intrinsic transformation that happens there, uh, you know, the checked attribute or whatever. And the the possibility there for that to accidentally break by you know preact accidentally checking the DOM property versus your previously set JSX attribute, that's uh, obviously a, a high possibility there. So I have kind of litmus tests in the unit tests that make sure that those things don't go wrong. And then obviously on top of that. Um, everybody knows there's there's the VDOM benchmark by local void. Um, that's a big one that's you know has ten or twenty different virtual DOM frameworks on there. Uh, it's not so great for comparing across frameworks because the semantics are very different, right? Uh, React doesn't recycle DOM elements, which is one huge difference from how Preact works. Uh, Preact desperately tries not to create new nodes. Uh, it will reuse nodes at all costs. Uh, and that's because I, I'm trying to get it to, to run in constant memory once an app has been navigated around a bit. Um, but in checking between versions, so you know, load up the current mainline version of Preact and then load up my, my local copy uh, in UI Bench, um, it's a good way to, to see you know, line by line you know, when rearranging 500 rows in a table, how long does that take or whatever. And then it gives you an overall value for just the total time taken to run through all the tests. Uh, and that's a, an absolutely indispensable tool for monitoring, uh, you know, performance regressions. You're making sure that the diff algorithm didn't accident, you know, you change an index or whatever, and it completely destroys the performance of deletes. Uh, you know, it can happen really good. Um, awesome, awesome. It, I mean, it's it's so it's so incredibly obvious to me that you've put like a ton of thought into this at a very like detailed level, um, so like that's that's really, really cool. Kudos for that, Jason. Um, I, I, I noticed that there are just a few things, and since this show is so limited on time, I'm sorry, you probably feel like we're flying at 20,000 feet right now, which we are. Uh, we just have to like just hit on a few points. Um, there's a compatibility layer, right? Preact compat, um, and that could, that's compatibility with like core React, right? So just, you know, for somebody who's Who's you know might be interested in thinking about this? Maybe the, is that for people who are like transitioning, maybe a code base for you know an existing code base from React to Preact? Is that what that's for? Yeah, it's bidirectional. So if you have a React code base, um, it is quite likely that you could either through Webpack or Browserify or whatever alias React and React DOM out for Preact compat, and you're it should still run. If it's not, that's a bug. Um, there's a couple little caveats to do with uh, you know modules that reach into React's undocumented internals or, or sort of unintended public internals sometimes. Um, and, and I'm working on, you know, replacements for those, but the, there's, there's issues where it's actually not going to be possible in some cases. Um, but yeah, it's, it's either for people coming from React to Preact or, you know, somebody looking to optimize their production bundle, uh, you know, by compiling it against Preact. Um, or the other way around, if you want to write React code, you know, capital R React code, but you want to use Preact, you just alias it out for Preact Compat, write your code as if you were using React, and for the most part, you shouldn't care or ever notice. 
Um, it, it does tend to get That's slightly awesome. hairy. Yeah, yeah. It's it's been a kind of a work in progress because there's there's you know there's the React API and then there's the React API like the, the rest of the iceberg uh, you know test utils and all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was definitely a work in progress. But that's awesome. I, I noticed you uh, you actually do have kind of an officially blessed uh, Preact boilerplate, which uh, you know all of us here on this uh, on this show we're all huge fans of Webpack and that's a Webpack. Uh, powered thing, so that's that's actually really really cool. That's that's something that many in the uh, React community uh, have kind of attempted to uh, solve. And I don't know if, uh, in fact, Ryan actually has the, the React project thing he's worked on. Um, that, that's it's it's cool just to to have some kind of direction from the top about okay, this is how you might want to actually build a full project, you know, in Preact. Um, anything to say about the the boilerplate there? Yeah, I mean, I put the boilerplate out there because obviously, like all my stuff's powered by Webpack, um, and yeah. I kind of wanted to show, like, hey, if I was going to start a new Preact project, this is pretty much where I'm starting from, uh, you know, unless it's something crazy off the wall like an Electron app. Um, but the the one thing I kept getting was, you know, how do I enable hot module replacement? How do I work with CSS modules with Preact? And a lot of that has nothing at all to do with Preact at all. Those those are Webpack questions. Uh, so. Preact boilerplate is kind of my contribution to like, okay, yes, it serves as a starter point if you just want to build a, a web app or a website with Preact, but also here's a pretty simple webpack configuration that enables both of those two things. Um, and, and I guess uh, one thing about boilerplates for me, I, I really want to see them kind of go away. <laughs> um, they're, they're kind of confusing. I don't like the idea of forking and then forgetting. Absolutely. Um, like certainly... Yeah. Internal at Cinecore, we don't use them. We have you know command line tools that wrap around all of our infrastructure like that. So you you kind of take a command line tool with you through your development workflow, and it's just a semver link between you and how things work. Yeah. Um, and and I, I know that's that's similar to Ryan's thing. I th yeah, I think they're just primarily like a stepping stone, right? Or yeah. just you know we all want to get there, and yeah, they're just stepping stone. Ryan, yeah. you look like you wanted to say something. Ryan, you're muted. I think your mic is muted. How's that? Is that better? That's having darn, darn scratchy there, bud. It's scratchy. Yeah. Just the trees. <laughs> How about that? Is that better? Just pretty much just as bad. Just as bad. <laughs> oh, that's better. That's, that's better. Little, that's a little better. That's better. This is better. <clears throat> Sorry about that. I was having mic problems earlier. Um, okay, so we look back at like history of JavaScript, and we've got underscore. And then Lodash shows up because, if I remember right, I'm sure people might remember this better than me, uh, that there were some performance improvements that um, a, a handful of people, um, mostly John David Dalton, wanted to make to Underscore, but uh, Underscore wouldn't accept those changes. So they went ahead and said, well, let's make our own thing, call it Lodash. And now, like, it totally took over, and it's what everybody uses. Um, is that your goal with Preact, or what is your goal with Preact? No, it's definitely not the goal. So Preact is never going to address the alternative renderer use case. You'll never see a Preact native. It's just not going to happen. Um, since, since the mission there is to just be the simplest possible implementation if you're going web and only web, um, it's always going to be pigeonholed to that use case. And I'm, I'm totally fine with that. I don't want to have to cater to the, you know, to the, to the other 50% you know, of that battle or more. Um, so I don't ever see it, you know, even competing with with React's market share, if if you'll call it that. 
Well, and there's a there's a whole like third party sort of ecosystem of you know there's React three and React Canvas and like you know all these other sort of things that you know f for you to try and say this is this is also my concern would just bog you down and take a ton of extra effort and stuff. So yeah, it's already hard enough to keep up with. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> That's one thing that underscore uh, didn't have. Like I mean, there were mix-ins, but that was pretty easy uh, for uh, for Lodash to add in. So I I've got to say that. We have uh, just two minutes left, and I believe, uh, Jason, that you had a couple of things you wanted to bring up at the end of our conversation. Was there anything else in particular you wanted to, to talk about? Yeah, just future of React stuff. So there's a couple things that um, that I am looking at pulling into Preact that I would really like React itself to also adopt. Uh, obviously, pure component is, is coming. That's kind of a train that's already set in motion. Um, and then kind of shortly thereafter, memoization of pure functional components. Uh, so you, you have the same should component update false optimizations for pure functions as you would for classes. Because uh, really, I think we should be trying to treat functions as the first class citizen and classes kind of as a, you know, a second, not a second class citizen, but something that comes after functions. Because uh, they're certainly the simplest to render. Um, that would be cool. I'd really like to see um, some modularity improvements in React. So I, I had you know, alluded to the symlink modules where you, you install something from NPM and it's literally just a common JS import of, of something from React Core. Yeah. That seems like a low-hanging fruit, honestly, for React. Uh, I would yeah. love to see those get migrated out into their respective modules. I think it's honestly just a timing thing. If they're going to have to do a version 16, break it, say these are incompatible with prior, and then move on. Yeah. Um, so that would be good. And then the, the last that's, thing that, in there... That's, that, that gets rid of things like... React secret DOM do not use or you will be fired. Precisely. Uh, and then the last thing is I would love to see, like I'm very interested in Polymer, and obviously Polymer's doing DOM diffing and that kind of stuff as well. I would love to see um, bidirectional interoperability between React and web components. Uh, and, and they're in Preact web components. I want to be able to see web components that are authored in libraries that can also then be consumed in libraries. And I, you know, put in my little notes here. I want to see like the UMD of components. Yeah. You know, you just the, as... the magical unicorn of uh, web, of a web component. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. <laughs> All right, that's our time. Thanks everybody for coming. This has been awesome. Hey, Jason, thank you so much for being on on our show today, man. Uh, Not a problem. Like like I said earlier, it's very clear to me that you've done a lot of deep thinking about a lot of the. You know the React, uh, you know problems and, and everything. It's been really really fun having you on the show, man. Hopefully we'll have you again sometime soon, and we can dive deeper into some of this stuff. Cool. See you. Man. All right. Bye.